this is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw, and today is March the 20th, 2007. Yes, 2007. And that means that spring has sprung, I think. I believe at about five o'clock. Let's see, is that about, in about two hours? Now, I know some people are, um, very particular about this sort of thing. They want to know the moment, the moment of the vernal equinox, so that they can go out and dance in the streets. <laughs> I, I might try that this year. Yes, why not? What the hell? Uh, I think what I will do is I will talk about, uh, Something cheerful. I will talk about Emily Dickinson. That'll cheer me up. Yes, I'm so tired of the wargasm, and I'm so tired. Yes, of being sick and tired of all this mess. These human beings, you know. Oh, golly. The 21st century. <laughs> I want to talk about real radicals, you know, poets. Um, Emily Dickinson. Dear Emily. She is my favorite, and let's see, this is uh, International Women's Month, March, and next month, April, is National Poetry Month, so I'll just put them together. That means that I'm politically correct. I have the right label. I have a woman, and I have a poet. Yes. Someone said, I think, that poetry is the poet. I've thought about that all my life. Someone once said that a poet is someone who radically changes the world. I think, I think we need to narrow it down a little bit more than that, yes. Uh, but I take their meaning. Uh, Emily Dickinson wrote, uh, if I read a book and it makes my whole body so cold, no fire can ever warm me, I know that is poetry. If I feel physically as if the top of my head were taken off, I know that is poetry. These are the only ways I know it. Is there any other way? <laughs> difficult, difficult, difficult. Of course, everyone comes at this question of poetry from a different angle. Gertrude Stein says, what is poetry? And if you know what poetry is, what is prose? <laughs> Auden, W.H. Auden says, poetry might be defined as the clear expression of mixed feelings. That's cute. Gerard Manley Hopkins says, poetry is speech framed. I like that. Yes, I kind of like that. The difficulty these days, you know, with prose, people sort of read it. Um, they read little phrase groups. Uh, I remember someone who was typing up Gertrude Stein's work, said you have to read it one word at a time. Very few people read one word at a time. Uh, Dylan Thomas says that poetry is the rhythmic, inevitably narrative movement from an overclothed blindness to a naked vision. That's interesting. I would transmute that and say, yes, that poetry is taking your clothes off. Hmm. Telling a truth. Matthew Arnold, 
He was a bit of a Tory, Matthew Arnold. He says, poetry is at bottom a criticism of life. Hmm. Lightning illumination. The lightning illumination of thought. That's old Babette. She's the one who wrote the little handbook of poetry. You know her. Uh, when we get into the modern, we get into the 20s, Wallace Stevens introduced a concept he called the anti-poetic. Uh, he said that was that truth, that reality to which all of us are forever fleeing, that is, to which. Uh, who is it? Uh, E.B. White says, My heart has followed all my days, something I cannot name. I guess, yes, poetry is that thing that we're looking for, something glimpsed around the corner. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I certainly don't like the old stuff. Walt Whitman destroyed 19th century verse forms. I was tired of them, yes. Gertrude Stein took an axe to syntax. Somebody said that T.S. Eliot was more interested in gravity of import and more interested in that than in structure. He needed to go to Ezra Pound to give him some structure. I think uh, Eliot was a, uh, he was a religious. Yes, the Church of England got him the blood of the lamb. Yes, I think he was more interested in what I would call Oh, shoot, sacred writing, the notion of the sacred. Anyway, the element of song uh, is so essential to poetry that the lyric impulse transmuted itself through music. Yes, late 20th century poet, that's got to be Bob Dylan and a few others. The poetry of the masses today is certainly pop music lyrics. Leonard Cohen, I think was the first of these uh, songsters, the modern ones, to get through to me. Uh, Bob Dylan would be, for me, the quintessential modern poet. Uh, I guess it depends on where you sit, what you think poetry is. Most people think it's exclusionary. Marianne Moore said, I too dislike it, you know. It's called, oh golly, don't make me, don't make me think. Yes, <laughs> I always say that you can't make poetry out of thought. Poetry is always passion. Sometimes propaganda, sometimes a weapon, sometimes agitation, yes, uh, meditation. Bertolt Brecht said that it is uh, a hammer with which to shape reality, society. Uh, yes, knock it into shape. I like the phrase that the young uh, spoken word folks use. They say simply that poetry saves lives. The one I've been using this year that I like best of all is the ex the phrase, uh, poetry is news that stays news. I was thinking of that watching my favorite TV show, Rome. The Cicero's Garden, yes. Cicero's Garden is full of these beautiful ripe peaches. And someone, one of the major characters, comes to uh, kill Cicero, end his life, and uh, uh, he asks for the peaches. He asks to take away some peaches. Think of the rose in uh, Beauty and the Beast, so many things. Anyway, 
The Peaches in Cicero's Garden. That's my favorite poem this week. I have an essay here that I wrote, oh, a few years ago when I had a, uh, a crush on Emily Dickinson. It comes and goes with me. There are times when Emily Dickinson makes me impatient. And then I go back to her because of her, her ecstasy, uh, her radical, radical, uh, take on life. Emily Dickinson wrote, My barefoot rank is best. I guess by that she means that she's not a proper academic poet, uh, and she's certainly not a religious poet, although, uh, she is a spiritual poet. We're having trouble with those words, of course. Uh, anyway, we've got spring blossoms out there. We've got the uh, plum blossoms and the cherry blossoms. So it's time for Emily. She was born in 1830, almost on my birthday, 1830 in December. She lived, let's see, to 1886. She would have died at age 56. She died of Bright's disease. That's a kidney disease said to be the revenge of the kidneys. She wrote, quote, I like a look of agony because I know it's true. Now, that is not sadomasochism. <laughs> that is simply her recognition that reality uh, is not uh, pastel pictures. I always wondered what she meant when she wrote, quote, My life had stood a loaded gun. What would Emily Dickinson have to do with loaded guns? Her thought rhymes have been my Zen koans for half a century now. I come back to her in the spring in search of a resurrection. April, of course, means a plunge back into poetry into the erotic. April is the cruelest month, give or take a week or two in late October, but it is the time when we come alive once more, eros in the blood. Hmm, for me the ache is in the bones more than the blood, but that's another story. Uh, we revive our emotions. These days, when the fear of feeling is everywhere around us, it's harder than ever to get going uh, to to feel, literally, hard to feel. We need to let go of rational order. That's Yes, that's the linear order, the rational order. It leads straight to death. We need to turn away to sing and dance in the moonlight the way... Our mothers did, our pagan ancestors. Uh, linear thought must be seduced by wild mind. Wild mind uh, contains the fires of ecstasy. I think of uh, Emily Dickinson as a kind of Delphic oracle. The name of the Delphic uh, oracle was Pythia. She had a pithy, pithy quality. She was a prophet. She made mind music. She heard the grass growing. She wrote, quote, Witchcraft is wiser 
than we. Conventional Christianity uh, was not her cup of tea, at least not what they were serving, you know, in in uh, Amherst at the time, yes. She didn't, uh, well, she went to church when she was very young, but she quit that early on. Uh, she writes, I do not respect doctrines. They, she's speaking of her family, they are religious, except me, uh, They address an eclipse every morning, whom they call their father. (laughs) She goes on here to make a footnote. She says, there is that which is called an awakening in the church. I know of no choicer ecstasy than to see Mrs. Sweetser roll out in crepe every morning. I suppose she means to intimidate the Antichrist. At least it would have that effect on me. Emily Dickinson wrote that her business was circumference. She read George Eliot's novel Middlemarch, and uh, she wrote that she was convinced that the mysteries of human nature surpass all the mysteries of redemption. Yes, I was thinking, I was reading a biography of Thomas Hardy the other day and thinking that... uh, 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 Emily Dickinson, of course, was over here in America, but she too had picked up on this notion that it was humanity that would um, uh, be the object of our study rather than God. Yes, we should have reverence for humanity, the mysteries of human nature. It's funny, I was thinking uh, yes, about human nature and why we don't understand it. Uh, Here it is, 2007, and we still ask the same questions. You know, why does so-and-so act the way he or she does? Why do they uh, behave that way? Uh, I found something in The Souls of Black Folk, written in 1903 by W.E.B. Du Bois. It's a little, little paragraph I'm fond of. Du Bois in Souls of Black Folk writes, Herein lies the tragedy of the age. Not that men are poor, all men know something of poverty. Not that men are wicked, who is good? Not that men are ignorant, what is truth? Nay, but that men know so little of men. I would add there is or of women. Why is it so difficult for us to understand one another when, of course, most of us uh, are searching for the same things, feeling the same things? Everyone always says, Oh, I'm so glad to know that I'm not alone. I'm not alone in being lonely, that sort of thing. They go to a shrink, and the shrink tells them that everybody has the same problems. I think it hurts their egos. They want to be the only one with a tragic sense. Uh, In any case, Emily Dickinson was searching for the ineffable. She was reaching. She writes, Impossibility, like wine, exhilarates the man who tastes it. Possibility is flavorless. (laughs) Gertrude Stein put it this way. She wrote, quote, If a thing can be done, 
why do it? <laughs> For both those poets, consciousness is to the soul as syllable is to sense. These women could be both sensual and cerebral all in the same sentence because they know, they know the gun is loaded. They know that thought and feeling are not separate, that mind and body are part of the same package. Now, back in 1870, Emily Dickinson wrote, yes, uh, she wrote, There is a darker spirit that will not disown its child. Uh, she writes on the subject of religion, In that last day that Jesus Christ you love, may remark he does not know me. But there is a darker spirit will not disown its child. I think that's so interesting. I, I don't know whether she means the devil precisely. She simply says a darker spirit. Things were stuffy in Amherst in the middle of the 19th century. And uh, Emily was one of those people I think of her as, well, not just a tree hugger, but she was definitely in love with nature. She had that ecstasy in living. She loved, for one, uh, a woman named Susan Gilbert, who was married to her brother Austin. Uh, brother Austin and Susan set up house next door. Emily's fierce relationship is... Uh, detailed exhaustively there's a biography my favorite biography is Richard B. Sewell's S-E-W-A-L-L -L, Sewell Richard Sewell's 1974 biography of course biographies and commentaries on Emily Dickinson uh, are too many to number I think we should just uh, we should just read them all yes but most of them do admit that what Emily Dickinson had was what's called today uh, emotional intelligence. <laughs> Just a bundle of nerves, that girl. Where was Emily coming from? She writes, I see New England Lee. <laughs> yes, the New England point of view. Is there a California point of view? Anyway, her school was Amherst Academy. In 1847, she entered Mount Holyoke Female Seminary, but very early she became what was called low in health. She withdrew, lived always in her brick house, staying within its grounds, going deeper and deeper into the house. Especially when the doorbell rang, she told her friend Thomas Wentworth Higginson, quote, she said, all men say, what to me? So she decided to restrict the number of questioners. Now, Thomas Wentworth Higginson was someone who meant a great deal to Emily Dickinson, but the biographers all argue about uh, how much. He wrote that her father could be described as thin, dry, and speechless. In 1862... Emily wrote, quote, My father only reads on Sunday. 
He reads lonely and rigorous books. I have a brother and sister, Lavinia, born in 1833. Uh, my mother does not care for thought. <laughs> That's wonderful. My mother does not care for thought. And father, too busy with his briefs to notice what we do, he buys me many books but begs me not to read them because he fears they joggle the mind. In June of 1874, Emily's father died. She writes, though it is many, many nights, my mind never comes home. A year later, her mother became an invalid, suffered paralysis until she died in uh, 1882. It's a long time. Yes, she took care of an invalid mother from, uh, let's see, seven years almost. And she writes, We were never intimate, mother and children, while she was our mother. When she became our child, then affection came. I think that these Victorian Americans have an awful lot to teach us. Emily Dickinson is not to be pitied or uh, uh, dismissed as some kind of a uh, dysfunctional person. Uh, she had a wonderful life. She had celestial evenings by a blazing wood fire, music. When she was young, there was rampant fun and uh, gaiety in that household. There was feasting. They were well-to-do, and she had her solitude. She writes, quote, that polar privacy, a soul admitted to itself. Now, Emily did not abuse leisure. She had uh, all kinds of occupations. She did a lot of gardening. She baked. She attended to sewing, knitting, and wrote hundreds and hundreds of letters. I find the letters as fascinating as the poems, I have to admit. She played the piano. Uh, she took long walks with her dog, Carlo. She writes that Carlo was large as myself, that my father bought me. This is her big dog. Emily fled from social distractions, from conventional society. She wanted to develop her imagination, that sixth sense. I believe she was a mystic, living among orthodox religious institutions and those structured belief systems in Massachusetts in the 19th century. She needed to be alone to develop these qualities. Emily's niece writes here, she says, Once I repeated to Aunt Emily what a neighbor had said, that time must pass very slowly for her who never went anywhere. She flashed back with Browning's line, Time, why time was all I wanted. Let's face it, Emily knew who she could talk to. She writes, the soul selects her own society, then shuts the door. The poet's tragedy, if it is a tragedy, is to love alone. Dickinson writes, quote, till it has loved, no man or woman 
can become itself. Like uh, Emily Bronte across the sea in Yorkshire, uh, Dickinson is a solo act, but she has the angst of an existentialist. She writes, It might be lonelier without the loneliness. A poet who cannot be heard in the world of her time must go deep into herself. This is my letter to the world that never wrote to me, she said. Emily's poems are iconoclastic. The world had no use for her voice at first. The Reverend Brooke Herford read some of her verses in the Boston Christian Register. He thought them, quote, one of the most offensive bits of contemptuous Unitarianism that I have met with. In those poems, Emily had compared Christ's coming on earth uh, in behalf of the Father with John Alden's service on behalf of Miles Standish in Longfellow's poem. You remember John Alden asked uh, the young woman, uh, Priscilla, to marry Miles Standish, yes. <laughs> she prepared, Yes, she compared this to Christ coming to earth on behalf of God the Father, yes. Emily is quirky, sardonic, irreverent, bold, witty, and even comic. My favorite, favorite uh, religious, so-called religious line from Emily Dickinson is, God is a distant, stately lover. <laughs> Among her earthly loves, yes, this sister-in-law, Susan, seems to be the most selfish and sadistic uh, a later love of her brother Austin was Mabel Loomis Todd, a woman who was much more sympathetic toward Emily's life and work. Along with Thomas Higginson, it was Mabel Loomis Todd who published the second series of Dickinson's poems in 1891. And uh, one of the first readers of the poems was Alice James, the sister of Henry and William James. Alice James wrote in her diary in 1892, It is so reassuring to hear the English pronouncement that Emily Dickinson is fifth-rate. They have such a capacity for missing quality. The robust evades them equally with the subtle. Mabel Todd wrote in her journal that editing Emily's poems had a wonderful effect on her mentally and spiritually. There's a great deal here uh, about how Emily Dickinson's poems liberated women. Maybe I'll have time to read that another day. Certainly these women are our mentors. They are my literary saints. They get me up in the morning and they put me to bed at night. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air Thursday at 8.20 in the morning. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. There's your picture. Drop the shadow.
Women's History Month, Laney College invites you to join us on March 23rd, 7 p.m. at the Laney College Theater for LunaFest Film Festival. Films by, for, and about women. Tickets are $12 general and $7 students. Come check out some amazing films by women filmmakers from around the globe. That's LunaFest, March 23rd, 7 p.m. at the Laney College Theater in downtown Oakland. Proceeds benefit the Breast Cancer Fund. For more info, log on to laney.peralta.edu backslash Women's History Month. You are listening to KPFA and KPFB Berkeley, KFCF Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. Coming up next, Free Speech Radio News. And at 4 o'clock, you have Hard uh, hard Knock Radio. 5 o'clock, it's Flashpoints. And at 6 p.m. this evening, it's the KPFA Evening News. So please stay tuned to your local community radio station. (laughs) 